Hey, brother, there's an endless road to rediscover. Hey, sister, know the water's sweet, but blood is thicker. Oh, the sky. Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood. Brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta hug. I'm Tony. And I'm Jesse. Brother? I'm going to have a brother? I've always dreamed about having a brother. If you'd like to join our brotherhood, you can join our Facebook group. You can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on, Tony? Not much, not much. Just getting ready for a little bit of a cold snap again in uh, the end of April. Uh, we had so much love for New England last week, and I have so much hatred for New England this week. <laughs> we might actually have a frost tonight. That's crazy. I know. It's it's ridiculous. It is a very balmy 86 degrees. In fact, the weather outside is like the inside of a dog's mouth. Oh, that's that's hot and steamy is what that is. It is. that. Those are two words that are not often associated with our podcast, but yes, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah. We have this joke about the dog. Um, cause in the morning, so the dog sleeps in the bed and she tunnels under the blankets and she moves around a lot in the night, but she usually in the morning, she's under the blankets down by her feet. And so when the alarm goes off and I lift up the blankets and the light comes in, she sort of like claws her way to the front. And we talk about how her uh, morning licks are like licks from the sun because they're like ridiculously warm from being like bundled up under the blankets all night. Uh, already this has been probably, what what episode is this? Like 30? 34? 34? Who's counting? 34. Clearly yeah, not counting? us. Not us, But no. the best combinations of words that have already occurred like, you know, 45 seconds in. Hot and steamy and morning licks. <laughs> morning licks. And licks from the sun. Somebody hashtag that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, that's exciting. Um, the most exciting thing that probably has happened to me recently is, this is going to sound super nerdy, but I've been doing some reading on something called behavioral economics. You ever heard okay. of that? Uh, it sounds familiar. So it's this whole idea, this whole discipline centered around the fact that you know, people respond to different incentives, and understanding how even subtle things can change our behavior and the best example that I've heard of this recently that I think is absolutely brilliant and also hilarious is that the, the great people at the Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam evidently decided that they had a serious problem in the men's restroom with AIM, if you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. So what they did to solve this problem without, without like making anybody aware of this is they just decided that they were going to etch, like literally engrave into the men's urinal in like the lower section, just a little outline of a housefly. And they found that by doing this, they reduced <laughs> spillage by 80%. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that makes sense, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I feel like all the dudes listening to this are like, yeah, I would, I would shoot at that. You know, like I would. That, but that's the basic concept. But so I, I, what struck me is how brilliant that is, honestly. Like who, somebody in a meeting somewhere was like, you know what we ought to do? So I, I love that that person came up with this idea. That dude but, is a genius. But also the fact that somebody was able to discern and measure the 80% difference in the spillage. That's like a huge difference too. 
It is. So that's what's great. And that's the whole essence of kind of this book I've been reading is that small things really impact and change our behavior in really substantial ways. But again, just the fact that like somebody in there has a technique by which to measure, presumably on a regular basis, the extra. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have you have a way with words, Tony. You know, it probably didn't even need to be a housefly. It probably could have just been like a little scratch that was big enough to see. So I actually shared this with my wife as well. And she being the great pragmatist as she is said, why not just like create a bullseye? And I was like, that's a good question. But I wonder if that's too forward in the sense that like yeah. uh, the rebellious part of ourselves once would be like, I'm not shooting at that. Yeah. I'm going to try to avoid that actually. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, ever since I read that, I have not seen it yet, but I'm looking now for like anytime I go into like a public restroom of sorts. Again, you know I, what? The ladies have You know no... what they should do? What's that? You know those games at the fair where you shoot the water into like the mouth and it like there's like a race? They should install those and they would have a 0% message. Uh, oh my gosh, that is outstanding. Like a little clown pops up or something like that, like you get to race your friends. Exactly, exactly. And if you if you like beat a certain time, then you get a prize. I've said this already a million times on this podcast. How many good ideas do we need to come up with before we just decide we're going to quit our jobs and do that thing? Well, I don't I don't think we have all that many women listeners, but I think all of them just turned off the episode. Yeah, my apologies. My yeah. apologies. Yeah. But the reason why I was bringing that up is because it has got me thinking a lot about behavior choices, how choices are couched to us, and, and something about our nature. And one of the things about behavioral economics is – there's this false assumption that almost all people, almost all the time, make choices that are in their best interest or at the very least are better than the choices that they would, would be made by someone else. And that's like, for, in my discipline, that's like a really big deal. We, that's where we start. And I get that part of the reason why we start there is because you need to have a rubric that you can kind of pull apart. And in the rubric, it's safe, it's sterile, you can make assumptions, you can try to discern interesting information. But like we even have a phrase for this mathematically, and that is, you know, like people, when it comes to making a decision, they decide based on whatever maximizes their utility, like their satisfaction or their value. And we say that they have to have quadratic utility functions. I mean, this is crazy nerdy, but it's almost wild that that's how we talk about people, but we do. So when I became familiar with this idea of behavioral economics, it basically pushes against all of that. And basically says people don't, of course, as we both know, don't make choices that way. Nobody does. But more than that, that people are horrible, actually, at making choices. And this got me thinking, from a theological perspective, how so many sciences, especially this one of behavioral economics, all they're doing is just catching up to the scriptures and saying, yeah, like, exactly. hey, wouldn't it be good if there was somebody who knew more about your life and about the things ahead of you and about the things that you should do and the things, yeah. the choices that you should make that could speak into that? And I just thought... Yeah. Yes. Like that's like all the world is looking for that answer and all the disciplines are are slowly pointing in that direction. You know what I mean? I do. And that's like the universal reality is like we hear about, um, you know, the, the most, the latest report comes out that shows like, Oh, it's, you know, it's, it's really a problem when kids are raised without a father. Right. You think really, you think exactly like, Oh, somebody said that, you know, 4,000 years ago and it was God. (laughs) (laughs) like the guy who made marriage and everything that you know he said that and you're you're just now saying oh yeah we we did this really long expensive study 
not only did we do this long, expensive study that tells us what every civilization since the beginning of time has said, but also God said it. Right. It's almost as if all these disciplines are bringing evangelistic opportunities to our door that we can yeah. talk to people about them, especially with stuff like this. I think this is like a wonderful entry point. Um, I mean, have you kind of run into that with either people you talk to? We've been able to use stuff like that as a way to explain that, you know, God is real and that all this stuff is contained within the scriptures. Well, not not that specifically, but I mean, Ashley and I were watching television um, and I don't remember what commercial. Oh, it was a commercial for some sort of skin treatment for psoriasis. Right. And um, the the kind of like the, the tag or the hook of the commercial was all these couples like enjoying skin to skin contact, not like in a sexual way, but like, like holding hands or like touching feet or like all these different ways Bumping that chests. they have skin to right. Skin to skin contact. And, <laughs> um, yeah. Bumping chest. Probably not. <laughs> so you, well, you just rolled right over that. Like you were like, yeah, that was, it took me a, a second to figure out, but th- that actually the point was that what you don't see in this commercial is two men enjoying romantic skin to skin contact or two women enjoying skin to skin contact. And I kind of mused and I said, I, I wonder why that is. And I, I reasoned it out and I don't have any scientific basis to say this, but you know, the, the statistic um, that I've heard bounced around in various places is that two to 3% of the population um, in uh, is afflicted with same sex attraction hmm. either um, because they've chosen that or because of, of situations that have driven to that or whatever. You know, we don't need to get into that part of it. Um, and the broader culture would have you believe they did surveys and they, you know, the, you ask the average person what percentage they actually think it is. And they'll say like 25%, some ridiculously inflated number. But the reality is that the homosexual population is still a tiny, tiny percentage. And most people, although they would never, ever admit it are still kind of grossed out by it. So marketing institutions have recognized that if I put um, if I put two gay men enjoying you know non intimate but romantic skin to skin contact, that's going to turn off a huge portion of our of our audience. Um, the other was um, I think it was an engagement um, commercial, and it was all these men you know classic stereotypical heterosexual situations of men getting down on one knee and proposing to their wife, and you know very stereotypical. The man's wearing a suit, the woman's wearing a dress, or out for a nice dinner, and, but you don't see men proposing to men and women proposing to women, and that's because the culture, the 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 um, sort of uh, homosexual agenda has forwarded this narrative, but the culture is looking at it going, no, 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 I don't, I don't really want that. That's not really appealing to me. Um, And science is, is actually backing that up is that even in, in a culture that we're in where homosexuality is seemingly normalized, the majority of people still don't recognize the legitimacy and the validity of those kinds of arrangements. Um, so yeah, that's another example. And, and I had a conversation with someone at work about something similar where like they were talking about something about transgenderism and they just said, you know, I'm really uncomfortable with it and I don't know why. Um, and I was, I was able to say, well, I, I can tell you why you're uncomfortable with it because this is the way that nature is. And it's because God has designed it that way. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right that the, these different kinds of scientific studies and behavioral studies that confirm truth that we kind of take for granted because it's what the Bible teaches, um, they do give us an opportunity to sort of say like, yeah, the reason you think that way is because every person has a conscience that's been given to them by God to recognize certain you know universal truths. 
That's a good point. One that I hadn't thought about in terms of marketing, because you'd think if there's any group that has the right incentive to appeal exactly to how people feel about something so that they can make money, it's somebody who's a vendor who's trying to sell a good. So if even that group is saying, well, people bristle at this type of representation, then I think that's like really telling. Yeah. Oh, and and I mean, I've I've been involved in marketing situations when I used to I used to work in a large corporate environment, and so we would occasionally be in meetings with people who were in marketing. And don't think for a second that the idea of putting a same sex couple in that commercial came up. Of course, right, it for came sure. Up. Yeah, for sure. And at some point, somebody did a cost benefit analysis to say, is it worth it to us? Because we're going to lose a certain percentage of people who are going to be turned off by this. We're going to gain a certain percentage of people that are going to be um, enticed by this. And they've done the numbers. And the number of people that are going to be turned off outnumbers the number of people that are going to be enticed by it. So it's it's not an accident at all. Right. Um, it's, I'm sure it was very intentional. Somebody brought up in the meeting, maybe we should put a gay couple in here. And somebody else said, you know what, we're going to lose customers if we do that. Right. Yeah, there's something wonderful about the fact that we can, of course, rely on these things as like an entry point into explaining why that is. The conscious yeah. thing is a big thing. And I, it's interesting in like your conversation for somebody to say, yeah, I just kind of like in bristle at this internally. I have a sensibility about it, but I don't actually have like a reference point for why per se that I feel that way. Even people who might say, I want to be really fair. I want to be very equitable. I want to be very egalitarian in my approach. Right. Still, there's something deep down where they're just uncomfortable with it. Right. And yeah, I mean, I don't know what a wonderful proof that you know, God does write the law in our hearts in, in all kinds of respects. And I like per your example, I don't even know for somebody, let's say, who's like very has made themselves comfortable with that type of situation or watching those types of things. Some of that maybe, as we've talked about before, just kind of anesthetizing your conscience through time, like just beating it down in such a way that your yeah. your God is just giving you over. But to me, in the general sense, it almost seems kind of like a, Romans one taken to like an extreme of just. I'm actually fighting against my conscience because the culture or the narrative that I want to believe is that I should be okay with this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's what Romans one talks about is that after a certain amount of disobedience in, in other areas and specifically in the area of refusing to worship God as he um, demands and deserves um, after a certain amount of that rebellion, God says, fine, all of the natural restraints of sin that I've put in your life, all of the things that I've built into the very fabric of humanity to resist sin. And there are things that are built into us that restrain our ability and restrain our desire to sin. He said, I'm going to let that go. I'm going to let you destroy yourselves. Um, and they, I mean, the culture at large does that too. And, and that's that's just the reality. It's kind of a sad reality. But in a lot of senses, too, it's like God has done that in his wisdom, that nobody can look yeah. at God and say, I didn't I didn't realize this was wrong and you are unjust for letting me destroy myself because God can simply just look at them and say, look, you didn't worship me. And so I let you become your own gods and you figured out the, your own way to worship and it destroyed you. And that's totally right and good and just. Amen. It is. And that's a really scary proposition because it's not just God saying, well, I'm going to remove my kind of benevolent influence here. But like you said, if he's going to take away all the natural restraints, I mean, we're almost saying he's he's allowing a situation where we're, we're, we're going to be less than human because of those restraints, in a way, if that yeah. makes sense. No, and it absolutely does. Th that is crazy uh, that we would get to such a point, but it's not without it being deserved because of our behavior. And basically, that's how all of us 
really deserve to live uh, except yeah. by the grace of God. So that's really scary. I mean, I remember reading somewhere, Calvin kind of expanding, I think it's in the Institutes, but unlike you, Tony, I cannot quote the chapter in verse, <laughs> but, but um, this wonderful treatment about suffering and how he links for me, which is so memorable, memorable, this idea that suffering sometimes is God's way of protecting us from getting to that point. Yeah. And then it's to be seen as this wonderful gift. It's, it's not, it's about discipline, of course, but it's also about saying, if I did not do this, you would, I would have to destroy you yeah. because you, you would turn away from me completely. And I think that just revolutionizes how I understand suffering. That it's, it's not always about you did something wrong, but God saying no is oftentimes God saying, at least to me, don't hurt yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, um, Rosario Butterfield, who is a very well-known um, figure, she was a feminist uh, literature professor who was you know, married, uh, it was in a homosexual marriage, um, and she started reading the Bible and her relationship started to fall apart as she started to read the Bible. And I've heard her say on more than one occasion that um, the destruction and sort of the falling apart of her marriage um, and her relationships, not just her rom- romantic relationship, but her friendships with other people was instrumental in her coming to faith because were she still to be in that community, she wouldn't have been able to embrace God's call the way that she did. She wouldn't have been able to bring herself to um, finally ask the question she did and finally start to attend a worship service regularly. And I have a friend um, from college. Before I went to a Christian school, I went to um, a secular school for four years. And I have a friend who was gay and he... um, you know, he kind of was at the end of his rope and he finally came to me and said, I just don't understand, Tony, why can't I get a relationship that works? And I it, I would like to call it a stroke of genius, but it, it actually was just me spitballing it and it could have been the wrong thing. It just happened to be the right thing. But I said to him um, something along the lines of, because that kind of relationship isn't supposed to work. Mm. Even when it, quote, works, it still isn't working. Right. Um, and I said to him, the fact that you're not able to enter into a relationship um, is actually a protection for you. And I know you don't want to hear it, but God is protecting you from further sin by not letting these relationships work out the way you want. And he, he came to faith um, a couple years later. And, and as far as I know, he still is struggles with same-sex attraction. But he he points to that conversation to say, that was the first time I started thinking about the fact that maybe this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Because the fact that it isn't working should have told me that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that's, you know, that's totally true is that God sometimes does things in our lives that we would look at in normal circumstances and say are negative things, but he does those things in order to protect us from ourselves. Yeah. He's amazing like that. Really. I mean, it talk about, you know, it sounds trite and cliche, but talk about finding in those things, especially later on some kind of unique blessing, because, you know, it, it struck me that if, I was always able to do everything that I wanted to, then I would have no conception of what it is to even follow God because I'd just be yeah. following me. Yeah. And so it is a really wonderful thing that we would be challenged with making choices of allegiance and good decisions. And that kind of is why I've been so interested in this concept of like this behavioral economics, because it just is interesting thinking about how we make choices, why we do, why we're created this way, why, why we have even problems of, conception, like why we make errors and we think that we're right. So let me give you an example. And this is not mine. This is several other people have used this, but um, you don't have to answer this question, Tony, but if you want, because it's got, it's a little bit of math. Are you up for like a little bit of math? 
I don't know. I'm never up for a little bit of math. We'll <laughs> this see is going to be so do. great. All right. So this is just for, for you and for everybody else listening. So the, the question that's often posed goes something like this. Let's say a bat, simple, simple math. It's going to involve a bat and a ball. And it's just simple, um, just addition. So a, okay. a bat and a ball together cost $1.10, right? Okay. So the bat costs a dollar more than the ball. So how much does the ball cost? Um, I know that the answer that I'm expected to give is a dollar, right? How much does so the the bat is one dollar more than the ball? How much is the right? Ball cost? Because the thought is, well, if it's a dollar and ten cents, and the bat, the ball, or the bat is the ball is ten cents, right. that must be a dollar, right? It, but I don't, I don't know. See, now you got me second guessing myself because I don't know if that's the right answer or the wrong answer that I'm expected to it's, give. So it's the answer you're expected to give, which is in this case the wrong answer. Like you're not alone in that because right. it seems like. The, the natural answer is the ball should be 10 cents because the bat is $1 more. But if the bat is $1 more, the bat would be $1.10. And if the ball is 10, then they, now you're up to a buck 20. So the right. actual answer is 5 cents. But all that to illustrate this point is that this is one of the things our brains see. And we don't even give a second thought. We just think we're right. We, we don't even like double check that. We just move on because it seems to make right. sense on the surface. And, and I was wondering, honestly, as, as I was reading that, is this the kind of thing that's a result of the fall? Or is this the kind of thing that God put in us so that we might trust him more to say we need somebody transcendent outside of our decision making, not just for big things like where do I live? What do I work? Like those, those things are great, but really to cling to in all matters of wisdom. I mean, have yeah. you ever thought about that? Well, I th- I, this is actually probably one of those. I guess there's probably a theological version of this, too. Right? So hit me. Because my initial instinct was to say, well, no, of course it's not a result of the fall, or it has to be a result of the fall, because there's no way that Adam and Eve would have believed something that was false. True. But but they did believe things that were false Ex- before exactly. the fall. Exactly. So, you and I so, are the same person. We're tracking. <laughs> so, there's, I mean, there's got to be, I guess in some senses, the fact maybe the fact that it is so easy for us to do those things is part of the fall, maybe? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, know. so like that is like a... I think what sometimes people call like assumptive thinking, which is really helpful because it means that you don't have to, like when you go to get dressed like tomorrow morning, which presumably will happen, right? uh, unless you go to work in a weird environment, then you'll decide like what pair of pants I want to wear. But that's not going to be like a a situation where you sit down and really probably reflect on it heavily. That's true. Sometimes... Sometimes my wife picks out my clothes, though. <laughs> so it's definitely not something that, like, yeah. she's reflecting Some, on it. Sometimes I get out of the shower and I come come back in to get dressed and my clothes are picked out for me. <laughs> so. So this this whole this whole comparison is just falling completely flat. But I need someone who's beyond me in order to. Oh, there we go. Well, Transcendent. there's a legitimate reason for that. So less less the audience think. Oh, that yeah. yeah. Totally we should talk about idiot. this. Go ahead. I'm a color. I'm colorblind. So it's not uncommon for me to think that two things match that are totally mismatched. Can I take um, a colorblind sidebar for just a second and then get back to my sure. question? So I, have you seen this stuff online, like these people being introduced to the glasses? Oh, for yeah, for people, sure. And it, and it just like being a super emotional experience, like a baby hearing for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, my, my colorblindness is not that bad. Um, mostly what happens with me is I get I get colors that are close to each other confused. So I might, I might think here's a really good example is I had these, these pair of shorts in high school that were like my favorite pair of shorts. I loved them. They were my favorite khaki shorts. And then when I was moving uh, out to go to college, 
um, I couldn't find them. And I said to my mom, do you know where my khaki shorts are? And she said, what do you mean? I said, you know, those khaki shorts always where they're kind of like a jean material, but they're khaki colored. And she said, oh, Tony, those are pink. <laughs> I was going so, to make fun of that, but that's actually where the story ended. <laughs> yeah. So I've, I had been wearing pink jeans to high school for like three years and uh, I wore them like every chance I could. That must have been so a like, great high school experience for you. Yeah, so mine's not that bad, but I can completely understand how it would be an emotional experience um, to not experience something that everyone else can um, and then suddenly to be able to experience it. Like, it would be a huge thing. That really touched me. Have you ever thought about getting the glasses? Because here's what I want to do. I want to get you the glasses and have you try (laughs) them on and then see if they really work, like really work. Yeah, I don't really understand the principle behind the glasses, but I would suspect that it probably would not be that impactful for me because of the the type of colorblindness I have. That's really disappointing. So, yeah, I would really love I could pretend to cry if you want. Yeah, I that's what I want to do. I want to set this up and like have you sitting in a in a like comfortable couch and be like, "Here's some glasses. Try them on." And then like you get emotional, people start hugging you. <laughs> You know, like they're holding up different color shirts and you're like, that's green, that's purple. Those aren't khakis. Those are pink. Like that kind of situation yeah. and just everybody's hugging on each other. You know, uh, what I would what I would ask every person who encounters a colorblind person is not to get them glasses that lets them see color, but to stop asking them what color things are. Because <laughs> I know that for There's people no who see... There's no fun in that for us who can see color. For people who see color and don't struggle with that, it probably seems sort of innocuous. But it would be like um, if you saw someone in, in like a wheelchair and you were like, wait, so you're handicapped and you can't stand up? Uh, try standing up for a second and then let me watch you fall on the floor. <laughs> wait, <laughs> you got what? that color wrong. That's the same thing as giving somebody it, colorblind I mean, colorblindness is a legitimate disability. And like I said, mine's not that bad, but some people like have really bad colorblindness. And like basically you're like, oh, show me your disability for my entertainment. <laughs> like now, it's, it's now d- I just feel downright it. awful for bringing this up. No, no, that's okay. That's okay. I brought it up. <laughs> no, I would, but I was the one that, that talked about the glasses. It's still this Christmas. It's going to happen. Okay. Here's a funny colorblind story to make up for it of somebody making fun of my disability and then getting their comeuppance. I love that word comeuppance. So I, I used to work in a corporate environment, as I mentioned now twice on this episode and never before that. But um, and I was in a meeting uh, with like vice president level, um, like executives, vice presidents and like chief officers. So like a really big deal meeting. And I was giving a presentation and, um, you know, we, we had a whiteboard and I was going to be drawing some things on the whiteboard and it was being filmed. So even if I wasn't, I was going to go erase the board because it was going to it was being filmed. It was going to be presented in other places. So I went up and I erased the board and one of my coworkers goes, Oh, Tony, you missed a spot. And so I stepped back and I look and I, I couldn't find it. And he goes in the middle, it's yellow. And so I'm, I'm erasing this spot. And I did that for like, like 30 seconds before he started laughing. And he's like, oh, I got you. There's nothing there, but you're colorblind in oh, front of like a whole room of people. And like, I, it was a joke. I wasn't that offended, but so I had a friend who worked in HR so I arranged for HR to call him into a meeting to discuss how he had violated a protected category. So yeah, I had him called better. into a meeting to talk about this. And like he thought he totally thought he was getting fired. And it was it was glorious. I totally got my revenge That's, on that one. That is even better. It's like yeah. something out of Seinfeld. Well played for you. Yeah. There was no heaping burning coals on that man's head. It was just straight up revenge. So. Wow. But it was well played. 
Yeah. Well, that's good to know. I, I Maybe I'll just keep the glasses for myself, but I'm still curious if they actually work <laughs> and like how much difference they make. I'm more, it's yeah, not that I, I want to like draw attention to it. Just, and maybe it might be, we've already talked about this for too long, but it might be that, are you not that interested in the colors that you are missing or? No, I, I think probably I, I don't really, um, you know, there are some people who are colorblind such that like they literally practically see in black and white, like they see in grayscale. It's never that extreme, but there are people that like their life is that, degradated because they don't see color at all like it's it's literally like a black and white movie so then all of a sudden they see that you pop this on and it's like it's like that scene in the wizard of oz where she wakes up and she's in color yeah, it's true. like that big of a difference for them for me like i might get like dark purple and dark blue confused big deal like it's not that like it's I, it doesn't affect my daily life all that much i might put on a shirt that doesn't match like that's the extent of how it affects my life um, so I, I just don't think, I don't think it would be that much of a difference for me. I don't think that it would be a drastic difference with the glasses on from what I normally see. Um, so I just don't know that it would be that much of an impact. I'm glad we addressed this. Yeah. That way you don't spend some ridiculous amount of money on glasses. No, well, no, sorry. I, I must have led you in the wrong direction. That's still probably going to happen, but I, oh, I'm okay. just glad that we <laughs> took the podcast. Like pro- we probably definitely should not have addressed this, you know, off the air. I'm glad that we just did it in the middle of this conversation. <laughs> It's all right. So, back, back to what you were saying yeah, though, so, about the so back to what about I was that saying, mismatch. Here, here's what I find interesting is, of course, that like Adam and Eve, as with all humans, have like automatic reasoning. And the bat and the ball math is like simple automatic reasoning. We just – we hit it. We crush it. We think it's good and it's done. So clearly they would have had that too. But I am curious about this interplay, which you already brought up. You beat me to the punch yeah. that – we would, I would kind of, my gut would have said, I guess my automatic reasoning would have said like, well, they couldn't believe anything false, but yet obviously they did because they got themselves right. into trouble. Yeah. So why, yeah, why I is was, that? I don't know. I was listening to a really interesting podcast the other day. Um, it's this podcast called revisionist history. And there was actually two, two things that are pretty interesting. The first one was about like free throw, free throw shooting and how like it's objectively better, like measurably better to throw free throws underhand. Underhand. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and uh, but like people will refuse to do it because other basketball players make fun of them. Is that Romans one thing. or is that some other? I think it's probably part of that. Theological it's like problem. We have this, we have this affinity for certain things that aren't good for us. But the other episode that really I think ties into this was they were talking about the whole um, situation with the Toyota cars that were accelerating unexpectedly. And there was all this press around how it was like, well, it was a computer issue or there's floor mats were getting stuck, all these different things. And they did all these tests. And really what it was, the only thing they can actually account for is that people were putting their foot on the gas when they thought they were putting it on the brake. Really? And and what it is, is there's this really common thing that happens. And I forget the specific terms, but it was something like signal confusion where you think you're doing one thing but you're actually doing another, but because you are so convinced you're doing the right thing, you, you don't even stop to think about the fact that you're right, doing the exactly. wrong thing. Yeah. And then when you get into like stress situations, it's even worse. So if you imagine putting your foot down on the brake and then you, you think you're putting your foot down on the brake and you slam it to the floor, but instead of stopping your car lurches forward, your first instinct is going to be my brakes aren't working. So what are you going to do next? You're going to keep stepping on the brake, trying to get it to work. Well, you're, you're now stepping on the gas. So the, the point was that our brains, and I, I think, you know, 
this was a secular podcast, so they were talking about brain dysfunction. But our minds as a separate metaphysical thing beyond our brains that maybe is generated by our brains or however that works, and then our spirits as another distinct level, all of those things are corrupted by the fall. Yeah, so even sure. though even though that natural limitation was probably present, we know that they had a had a possibility of believing falsehood. Um, and, and this was probably even the same thing. Like Eve looked at it. She saw that it was good for food and desirable for making one wise. Yeah, it's automatic. Right? automatic so she response. reasoned it out. It's totally logical. Right. It totally makes sense. And from a reform perspective, eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't objectively evil. It wasn't in itself evil. And as far as we can tell, it was a matter that they ate this fruit at the wrong time. That had Adam mm-hmm. passed his probation, he would have eaten of this fruit. He would have had the knowledge of good and evil, and he would have eaten from the tree of life. So they did this thing that they engaged this automatic reasoning of like, well, yeah, of course, we'll be like God. Well, they missed the point. They're like, well, we're already like God. We're already right. in his image. We're already his regions in, the, in the, the world. We already have dominion over the creatures. And they engaged in this automatic reasoning. And then I think after the fall, since all of our faculties are corrupted, this automatic reasoning that already had some sort of limitation to it is now a corrupt automatic reasoning that I think probably more often than not will be wrong. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. I agree. Especially on like major deci- on technical decisions on things that require actual reasoning. It's going to definitely yeah. be wrong most of the time. Yeah. I think, I think that's a satisfactory answer. That's more or less kind of where I arrived that it was present, but this corruption is so thorough that it causes all kinds of problems now. And what, what just, makes me think that it's this is just so crazy is that i think in an exponential way it makes the judgment even more difficult and even worse and what i mean by that is like kind of what you said that when you you go through the automatic reasoning you come up with an answer you come up with a solution you come up with, with what you think is correct and you are so quickly able to convince yourself because of this corruption that you are correct that you don't give anything a second thought yeah, and one of the things um, one of the things that I've learned in doing systematic theology is um, it, your first instinct is almost always wrong. Yeah, exactly. Stuff. And um, you know, it's it's interesting because one of the things that you learn as you study theology and you kind of bathe in good theology is you develop. I call it a bullcrap, you know, a bullcrap detector. And that, like, sorry to be crass, but, like, you just develop an instinct for when something seems off. And that's, like, a skill you have to really develop. And um, where I forget where it is in the scriptures, but there's that passage that says that by constant testing, you may, um, you may engage your powers of discernment. You may grow your powers of discernment. And that's what it is, is, like, when we come to systematic theology, our first instincts are almost always wrong, right? How do I get to heaven? Well, I better be really good. Right. right. Well, right. Um, this there's this three in one principle in God that I see from the scriptures. God must must have three different faces. He must be like water, ice, and vapor. Well, no, like that's that's heresy. But that's like our first instinct is to go to those things that are natural to try to describe something that we know is not natural. Um, so this the, you have to really learn even even a restored regenerated heart. You have to learn by practice to overcome that instinct. And it is by practice. I mean, that's why I know right. you and I have such a strong fidelity and commitment to a systematic approach to understanding and studying the scriptures, because 
when you start to marinate yourself in that and you're changed by it, then I think is what you're talking about. You even start to acquire a sensibility, like almost like an ear right. test. It overrides yeah. the the automatic portion that's like purely sinful to some degree. It doesn't make it perfect, but it starts to allow you to be transformed. I think that's what Paul is talking about when he says transform, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That right thinking is going to read, lead to right living, but you have to actually invest in right thinking. That is the key to this yeah. all. I think yeah. the verse you were referring to is, I think, I don't know, maybe not this is, it. I was going to say Romans 12, but I don't think that's where it is. Is that what you were thinking? The, in terms of like no, the testing? No, I mean, that's a good one too, that, that you may test and, and approve what is good and perfect and acceptable. No, there's a um, there's a passage that says you may prove your powers of discernment or something like that. I mean, it, this is like a really good reminder for me because it is really easy to go for like the low hanging fruit and to be not careful in your expression. And I think that yeah. probably some would accuse us of maybe splitting hairs or being semantic or being really nuanced with the language. But first, of course, language has meaning and meaning is important. But even more than that, it is important to kind of bridle your tongue with how you speak about holy things. It's worth yeah. trying to be really careful about it. It really is. And I know that Facebook and Twitter are full of debates about people kind of yelling back and forth about what things mean and what they said and what they really meant. But the bottom line is that we just need to be careful. And the only way I can think to do that is to constantly be in the scriptures and to be reading good commentary, other resources about yeah. the scriptures from people who have the same kind of commitment in teaching with a fidelity to understanding in an expository way what God is saying through his word. Yeah. Yeah. So the passage I was thinking of is Hebrews five fourteen, but I'm going to, I'm going to get a running start because this is actually uh, way more applicable than um, I would have actually thought initially. So starting in verse 11, he says about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So um, it, it's, you know, it's what I've learned is that you, as you do systematic theology and as you study the scriptures, not just systematic theology, but as you day in and day out read the scriptures, you know, this This is a perfect example is that you and I didn't know where this passage was, but we right. knew it was there because we've, we've studied the scriptures enough to remember a phrase about something. And we're blessed in an age where we can type in, I can type in four or five keywords and, and Google knows what I'm looking for. But I knew that there was this principle and we... Um, we were able to hunt it down. But if we hadn't been studying the scriptures and breathing in the scriptures, like living in the air of the scriptures, we wouldn't have known that that passage was there. And the same thing happens with systematic theology is that as you start to build this framework, as you start to understand, especially the more foundational stuff, Christology, Trinitarian theology, the doctrine of scripture, the, the, the base level of the pyramid, as you start to fit in other things into the system, you recognize something that doesn't work. And this is how I would compare it is you and I both play guitar, right? And I don't know a guitar player who doesn't do basically the same thing when they're tuning, right? If they have a tuner, they tune all of their, their strings up individually according to the tuner. And then what's the first thing they do? They usually it's the same chord. They play a G 
And that's because every guitar player is so familiar with what a G is supposed to sound like that they know if one of the strings is off. And they can hear it and they can feel it. And if it's not right, they go back to their tool and they recalibrate and they do it again. But I don't know any guitar player who just tunes up to the tuner and then it's like, all right, let's get started. They always play a chord that they're familiar with. Sometimes it's an E, whatever that chord is. They have that chord they know and they always play the same one. Or they have the same little chord progression or riff that they play that they know so well that they can tell when something's off. And it's the same, you know, the example I hear too is when when federal agents who deal with counterfeiting money, and you work in a bank, so you probably have heard this story a thousand or this a thousand times, is when they want to teach someone how to recognize a counterfeit bill, they don't give them a hundred examples of counterfeit bills. They give them a genuine bill and you study that genuine bill. And you may not know what's off. You may not be able to place it exactly what is off on a fake bill, but you can feel it. And sure. theology and the scriptures, they're a lot like that is you hear something and you just go, you know what? I can't quite place it, but something doesn't seem right about that. And then I need to go study and figure it out. True. Yeah, that's that's actually that's right on in all accounts. You have a strange amount of knowledge about counterfeiting. <laughs> well, you know, no. <laughs> if I was a counterfeiter, I would have a much nicer car than I have. That sounds like exactly like the counterfeiter anthem, like they'd raise their right hand and say exactly. that. But regardless... Right. I, I totally agree. And what's interesting is it struck me, even as you were giving the example about tuning the guitar, that when you're playing that G chord, you're, of course, getting a sense for all the strings now together, like, you know, exactly. synthesis in the Bible, like letting it interpret itself, like kind of bouncing a concept or an idea or some kind of worldview against one part of scripture uh, to make sure that it comports with the whole. Yeah. Yeah. And that I mean, that's a really good point is there's not a lot of people who have perfect pitch who you could play one note for that they could not only know what that note is but tell you whether it's sharp or flat there's not a lot of people in the world like that but most people that i know that play guitar if you play a chord and one string is off not only can they tell you that one of the strings is off but with pretty good accuracy they can tell you which string and whether it's sharp or flat right i mean that's pretty amazing for people who can't pick a pick a note out and say this is sharp or flat to be able to do that in the chorus because there's something about the unity of those strings that that allows us to pick out what's wrong man we are getting so deep right now we just need to write (laughs) a manuscript we do we've just blown open guitar tuning as an example of why systematic theology is so important yeah yeah that's the way to go yeah i'm all over it but i i totally agree with that obviously it it's interesting that I think kind of like what you were saying that somebody can, I guess we're just, we're just saying get an ear for the scriptures, get an ear for God's truth. And that only happens by continually being in it. And in some senses, this is where I think there's like a really, really strong value for sometimes, if this makes sense to you, Tony, a consumption of the scriptures, especially in daily reading that is a little bit more ambitious. You know, I'm okay with like a reading plan, for instance, where you still want to be able to take a couple things out and meditate on those. But getting under your belt in a regular cycle, all of the scriptures in kind of this predetermined cycle is really helpful because it's helping you develop this overall sense for the grand arc of the truth in a way that when somebody says something or you're reading like, you know, we're talking about a bunch of different subjects and kind of relating them through the reform specifically, but Christian generally worldview that they either you either have, you know, a sense that that comports or or just doesn't. And yeah. it's almost like when I was going back to grad school, you had to take this all kinds of different tests, the GMAT for a business. And one of the parts of that test was idioms. 
So in English, obviously, like an, an idiom just exists. It's an idiom because there are no rules. So when right. I was studying with a group of people, this drove foreigners crazy because there was no way they could actually look at it in the multiple choice and figure out by way of reasonable deduction, which was the right answer. But for native English speakers, there was no problem because when you read it in your mind, it didn't sound right. And you just knew yeah. it didn't. You didn't necessarily know, need to know why. And in fact, there was no rule for you to understand. You just knew that it didn't sound right. And that's the place where I'd, I'd much rather be is as I try to mature praying that the Lord would open my mind in a sense that when I'm hearing things, even in conversation, I'm able to discern moment by moment the things that move against his will, that move against his glory so that I can either avoid them or speak into that situation and correct it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, then it goes back to the Romans passage, which wasn't the one I was thinking of, but it fits so perfectly is, you know, it starts by sacrifice. It starts by offering yourself, your body specifically in that passage, but offering yourself as a living sacrifice and offering yourself as a living sacrifice is your rational or spiritual worship. So you're offering your body and it's a spiritual and rational sacrifice and worship. But then, then it says, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's that renewing of your mind, which in, in what we're talking about right now is this development through practice, but this development of a, um, a framework and a grid to compare reality to yes, in order to discern and assess. So, you know, that's the passage that like when you go to your pastor and you're like, oh man, you're in college, you're like, man, who am I going to marry? How am I supposed to know what job I'm going to do? They bring you to this passage. They're like, see, you'll know the will of God. Well, that's not what it's talking about at all. Right. What it's saying is that as you develop this framework, as your mind is transformed and renewed, you'll be able to see what is good and what is perfect and what is acceptable. And by that standard, you'll be able to know what the will of God is. By the moral will of God, which you will know, you'll be able to know what God desires you to do. And there's two things so, coming together here, at least I think, and that is we have the sovereign will of God, his, his wonderful grace in opening our eyes to the truth that's found in the scriptures. But as you've already mentioned, Paul is saying as well, you bear responsibility. It's practiced, which which you know implies, of course, that we have to be at the business of getting the work done, getting after it, doing something about yeah. it. So it's our responsibility, and I think that means things like these wonderful resources in our day and age, like you know websites, blogs, podcasts. All this stuff is is part of that. If you're listening to good things, if you're reading the scriptures, if you're saturating your mind with good commentary about the scriptures then you're going to develop that. And I think all of our goal, of course, should be to move off of milk onto the real yeah. meat. And in the sacrifice that I think Paul's talking about, it's that sacrifice onto the Lord. But since we are clear that there's nothing, of course, in our sacrifice that we're giving, quote unquote, giving to the Lord, that's making him grander, more valuable or richer, where at the same time, we should realize that that sacrifice we make is one that references the edification of the body as well. That yeah. sacrificing to the Lord is doing these things so that we might edify and encourage and build up one another. So, for instance, like when you're studying hard at theology and we're having this conversation, that's a grand encouragement to me. It's actually transforming my mind, drawing me back into the scriptures and changing how I behave. And that's a yeah. sacrifice that you're making onto the Lord. But that is really also for me. And I think that's something that we often kind of forget about or just don't even realize is happening. Yeah. And then something, too, that I think bears saying kind of the flip side of this is I run into a lot of um, the the circles that I run into are largely populated by young counterfeiters, reformed guys who um, 
want to conquer the world. So they they get a taste for the tulip, right? They read a little bit of John Calvin. Was that and not then a they, book already? Sorry to interrupt. I don't know. Taste of the taste tulip. Of it's the introduction tulip. to Calvinism. I'm going to trademark that right now. Um, so they, they get sort of like a tiny bit of Reformed theology. They read a little bit of Calvin. Um, maybe they read a little bit of something like Burkhoff or like, you know, Bob Inc. One of those other, you know, more modern Reformed theologians or whatever. And then all of a sudden they're like, I'm going to jump into every Reformed versus Catholic debating group that I can find. Right. Right. But they run in there unequipped because they haven't done the work to master the basics. And then they get slaughtered. So, you know, it's kind of the same comparison as like the guy who who joins the army and he on his first day of boot camp, he grabs a gun and he runs out to the battle and he gets shot right in the face and he's dead. Wow, that's brutal. And there's no coming back from that. But like the as brutal as that is, losing a theological debate can have can have eternal consequences. If you go into a debate and you're unprepared and someone convinces you of a falseness, they convince you that you should pray to Mary just to see how it works, right? That's a real common tactic that Roman Catholics use. Well, just pray to Mary and, you know, pray to Mary, see how it feels. And, you know, maybe she'll answer your prayer and that'll be your, that'll be your answer. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Right. Right. They're saying like, just commit a little bit of adultery and see if God doesn't smite you down. And if he doesn't smite you down, then you know it must be okay. Right. Well, no. Like, no, it's not okay. And anyone who's taken the time to master the basics can immediately look at that and say, no, that's not okay. But people don't take the time to master those basics. Or another example is, like, you run into these you know, particularly young reform guys who go, all right, I'm, I'm sold out on justification by faith, and I'm sold out on double imputation, so I'm going to go read every book that N.T. Wright has ever published, and I'm going to be the one that refutes him. Well, no, you're probably not. Scholars much more able than you or I or anyone that we know personally have tried and have worked on this. And it, it not that they haven't refuted him, but it's not changing anyone's mind. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Joe, Joe Blow, who um, just became a Calvinist and has a blog, is probably not going to be the guy that gets N.T. Wright to recant of his false views on justification. More likely what they're going to do is they're going to get confused by N.T. Wright and they're going to become convinced that he's correct. Or Karl Barth or, you know, there's a whole host of sort of reformed-ish people that that happens with. And instead, you know what, pick up your catechism, pick up your Bible, and maybe pick up a simple systematic theology like Mike Horton, or if you want something more uh, Westminster-y, pick up something, you know, something that's recommended out of the Westminster in Philadelphia, maybe some John Frame or something like that. Good choices. And um, and do the work of mastering the basics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't I can't say that enough. Don't rush ahead because you're going to get slaughtered, and that's not going to be good for anybody. And I think that goes as well, if I can like jump on the heels of that and take us back to our conversation about baptism. Oh, I'm going back. Is, oh, is that even outside of different streams of theological thought, even within the Reformed perspective, again, having that sensibility of wanting to understand your brother's perspective before you decide you're about to cage match with him on yeah. something. And baptism is a good yeah, example absolutely. of that. Like if you walk into a Presbyterian church and say, Nowhere in the New Testament is uh, pedo-baptism prescribed. Like, they will eat you alive. Like, if that's all right. that you've got, then you, you're not, they're going to destroy you because they're going to show all the way through the scriptures how they're, they're kind of implying this from, like, a rich understanding of the Old Testament. Right. And it, it's not only disrespectful, it's just stupid to go in with something like right. that. So y- yeah. you really, it is really worth trying to understand those things. 
And um, yeah, that's why I love talking this stuff out. Like I think even probably in eternity, we'll be talking about all kinds of things because this is the way in which we'll continue to, I, I presume, to edify one another and to learn and grow in our faith and our understanding of who God is. So I'm excited about that. I feel like when we do this kind of thing, we're participating in something that is going to have eternal ramifications, not just like what you said about uh, the possible downsides, but also the upside that we're participating in an activity that hopefully will go on forever. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that probably should wrap up our discussion. Um, we managed to come into this thinking we're going to have a random discussion and mission accomplished. <laughs> so good work, us. Um, if you thought there was a subject and a topic, then you were mistaken. Yeah. But uh, we have some books to give away. Justin. Yes, we do. I'm very excited about this. This is our first ever giveaway. And I know we're giving away some pretty awesome stuff. So what are we giving away again? We are. So we are giving away one copy of our guest from last week's um, book, Reviving New England. And we are also giving away a copy of his latest publication, which was a, a modernization of a book called Christ the Fountain of Life by John Cotton. So we had two different venues to give it away. One was on Twitter and one was by leaving us a review. So Jesse, I think you have our Twitter um, recipient ready, I do. You? So I wish we had like a drum roll, but... The winner of Reviving New England is Jeremiah Whitman. Nice. Jeremiah, or if Whitman. you tweet at us in a private message uh, to get in touch with us, we will get you connected. We'll have to get your address and stuff, so probably don't tweet that live or you're going to get lots of interesting mail. But connect <laughs> with us through private message, uh, and we will get that book sent out to you. And I have... Our copy of John Cotton for a five-star review uh, left by, drumroll, insert sound effect, uh, J&R Wright. Yeah, J&R Wright. So uh, if that is you, then shoot us an email at uh, reformedbrotherhood at gmail.com, and we will connect and figure out how to get you your book. Um, if nobody emails us, then we will just continue to read the books ourselves, I guess. I love it. I mean, how good is the John Cotton book? Honestly, it's super good. Yeah, it's super good. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of a crier. I cry at movies a lot, but I'm not usually a crier when I'm reading theology books, but there's been multiple times where I've had to kind of dab away some tears. Uh, mine um, is on the just, way. In he's the got mail. such a beautiful way. Um, right now he's, I mean, the part that I'm in, he's really kind of emphasizing our sinfulness and how great it is that we have this fountain of life that we don't deserve. So I'm, you know, I'm finding myself tearing up frequently. Um, so yeah, it's, it's phenomenal and reviving new England. I've read it. Um, it's, it's a great treatment of kind of a vision for, um, not just revival, but for reformation, um, in our age that, um, Nate has put together for us. I agree. It puts some fire in your bones, doesn't it? Like it just gets you really stoked for going, getting the church to be serious about its mission and its purpose. Yeah, absolutely. So Jesse, I think that probably wraps us up. Um, do you have any closing words of wisdom for us tonight as the elder brother? I liked your example or your recommendation rather of just grabbing a systematic text. So we should throw some of those in the show notes. And yeah. I think that would be a great resource for people to have and to pick like, so the way I've done it in the past is you could do it one subject a year, but I think it's better to do like monthly or quarterly. Pick something that you thought, you know, I've always wanted to know more about that and use the systematic text as your springboard to really delve into a concept and really suck some of the marrow out of those bones. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is a great recommendation. Um, I don't think that I have anything else that I can add to that. 
So I'm really excited um, to get those books out. Uh, come get your but free that books. That doesn't mean that just because you don't get a free book that you shouldn't still come and leave us a five-star review because that really helps people find the show. So if you like the show, tell someone about it, but then also go leave us a five-star review on iTunes um, or does Stitcher and Google Play do reviews? I don't think they do reviews. I don't know. Just write, just write to Google personally and say how yeah. great this is. Log on to Google+. Plus. Google Plus. Write a message and nobody will see it because Google Plus is totally. <laughs> but at least that way you'll be satisfied knowing that the right hand will not know what the left hand is rating and reviewing. Google Plus. It'll be great. And if they should rename it, they should formally rename it to Google Minus. That's actually pretty funny. Like less yeah, than neutral. It's actually do. that bad. Yeah. Google negative. Speaking of Google, though, if, if anybody wanted to actually leave a voicemail for us, how might they be able to go about doing that? They would give us a call at 607-444-2767, which if you speak numbers, it's 607-444-BROS. Bros. I'm still amazed that that voicemail was uh, available or that phone number was available. It's just the superintending will of God. It is. It is. So that should just about wrap it up. And uh, don't forget that whoever loves his brother lives in the light awesome see you next week Uh